Welcome back to the second week of Baptist Essentials. And today we are going to be talking about ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And the title of my lesson this morning is More Than Simple Symbols. More Than Simple Symbols. So just a reminder of where we've been and where we're going. Last week we talked about what is a church and church membership. And if you don't have the notes, I'd encourage you, you need to you should grab the notes. My teaching notes are there on the back. You can have those for your reference. If you missed last week, you can grab the notes online or you can listen to the uh, MP3 online as well. What is a church and church membership last week? This week, church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Next week, church officers, elders and deacons. Then, church discipline. And then, church governance. Two weeks of those, elder-led congregationalism. So let me just review for a second what we talked about last week. Um, Last week we talked about what is the church and church membership. And if you remember nothing else from last week, here's what I want you to remember. Here's the big takeaway. Regenerate church membership is the Baptist mark of the church. Is the Baptist mark of the church. In other words, who makes up the church? Only those who are regenerate. Only those who are believers. That is the Baptist mark on the church. In fact, it is better to say who is the church instead of what is the church. And everything else in the Baptist's understanding of the church really flows from this core conviction of regenerate church membership Everything flows from that and is about protecting that and is about promoting that and is about seeing the gospel flourish in the life of the church, which is actually how we connect into the Lord's Supper and baptism. These serve to protect and to promote regenerate church membership. So we're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's just talk about some some definitional matters as it relates to ordinances right off the bat. Number one, should we call them sacraments or ordinances? Bottom line, it actually doesn't matter a ton. Okay? So sacrament is typically associated with the Roman Catholic Church, which understands saving grace to be conveyed, Latin phrase coming, ex opere operata, from the work done, which means that the sacrament conveys grace by the mere fact that it is properly done apart from the faith of the recipient. Okay? Now, that is not correct. Uh, sacraments, or I, would, I prefer to call them ordinances, although I don't think it's, a, it's not all that big of a deal. I prefer to call them ordinances. They are not effective by the mere proper working of them. Okay? They... they Faith on the part of the recipient must be active. Okay, so sacrament is typically associated with the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of these things. Ordinances is typically how you hear these things referred to in the Protestant world of which we are a part. Ordinance typically refers to the fact that the Lord Jesus has ordained these practices. Does that make sense? Ordinances? Ordained. Jesus has ordained them. He has ordained baptism. He has ordained the Lord's Supper. So we call them ordinances. And I do want you to know, 
They are a means of grace. The ordinances are a means of grace. God does pour grace out through these uh, ordinances in the context of a local church, but it's not saving grace, and it is not apart from the faith of the recipient. Okay? How many ordinances are there? According to the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven ordinances, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, or what they would also call Mass, penance, matrimony, holy orders, uh, confirmation, and extreme unction, also called last rites. So there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the reason why it's called a sacramental system is that they believe that saving grace is really poured out through the various different taps. If you were to think of beer taps, just think of grace taps from the Roman Catholic Church, if, if that's not, doesn't, doesn't sound too crude, but it communicates, okay? Grace is poured out through these taps, and in order to really have the full picture, you, you need all of these taps to be opened up through the Roman Catholic Church and through the, the sacramental system of that church. Uh, that's not correct. According to the Reformers and Baptists, there are only two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, what was the reformers' uh, criterion for how they determined what an ordinance is? Well, it had to be directly instituted by Christ, and it had to be directly related to the gospel. In other words, it had to depict in symbolic manner the central story of Jesus and our union with him. And if you're just sitting there thinking, how does baptism and the Lord's Supper depict the story of Jesus and our union with him? Well, you're in the right place at the right time. You're going to find out today. They're glorious, okay? Now, what is the proper setting for the ordinances? The administration of the ordinances belongs to local churches, not individual Christians. In other words, what we would say is we would say it is, it's inappropriate for a dad to just decide to baptize his child in his pool in the backyard apart from the context of the local church or the authority of the local church or the presence of the local church. We would actually not recognize that as a valid baptism here at Redeeming Grace Church because ordinances are not given to individuals. Ordinances are given to the local church the authority structure of the local church. What's the rationale behind that, you say? Well, the command to baptize was given to the apostles not as independent individuals, but as the authorized leaders of the early church. That's number one. Number two, the New Testament descriptions of baptism and the Lord's Supper seem to assume that these activities normally take place in the context of the church or in the case of some baptisms, at the beginning stages of the church's establishment. Now, right about here is when someone says, well, what about the eunuch? If you remember the eunuch uh, who was traveling along, and then Philip uh, kind of sauntered alongside the chariot as the eunuch was in there, and he just kind of goes up and he hitches a ride with the eunuch in his Uber of the day. And the eunuch says, oh, well, Philip says to the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? He's actually reading in Isaiah. And the eunuch says, how could I understand it unless somebody opens it to me? So then Philip begins to teach him about how Isaiah teaches of Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, risen, and how faith and how faith through his name saves. And then the eunuch is like, ha, I believe. 
look, there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And then Philip's like, yeah, nothing. Let's go baptize you. He baptizes him, and then the Spirit takes Philip away, and he goes off to somewhere else. Um, I would say that is the exception, uh, and exceptions don't disprove norms, okay? Exceptions are exceptions. Exceptions are not norms. So the New Testament typically describes baptism and the Lord's Supper as occurring within the context of the local church. Uh, that's, just, that's just how it, it presents it. This is an, actually a very important point that I'm about to say. Theologically, the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper link both to the church, and this is why they're not individual ordinances. They're church ordinances. The meaning of baptism and Lord's Supper link it to the church because they are the means by which we initially, as in baptism, affirm and then repeatedly, as in Lord's Supper, affirm our inclusion in the community of the church. Baptism, what we're going to see is that baptism is the entry right into the church, the community of faith, and the Lord's Supper is the continuing right in the community of faith in the church. So the meaning of them is not separated from the church. The meaning of them is intricately tied to the church, okay? And then note, please don't think this means that baptisms have to happen in the church building. They do not. They could happen anywhere. For example, I've decided that next Sunday we're going to have our baptismal service at Lake Champlain. I'm just kidding. Uh, it is a little bit early for that. Jesus did say count the cost, though, people. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So, actually, we're not going to do that. Lindsay's like, hallelujah, praise God. Uh, all right. So, let's talk about baptism. Uh, baptism is the ordinance of conversion or initiation. I'm going to read you a quote out of John Hammett's excellent book called Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches. Here's a quote. A lovely analogy for baptism is provided by marriage. Faith may be compared to the love that binds two people together. It develops internally and leads two people to make a commitment to one another. The wedding is the occasion where that love is publicly celebrated, confessed, and confirmed. It does not create the love, but it expresses and seals it in a beautiful and solemn way. Likewise, baptism does not create our faith or union with Christ, but it confesses, celebrates, and confirms it. It is the occasion when one almost literally takes the plunge. Excellent quote there. What does baptism symbolize? Very important. What does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes purification. Purification from sin. Uh, It's part of the reason why I would say a Baptist convictional understanding of baptism is the most appropriate understanding of baptism. There is an entire cleansing that takes place, if you will, in the water. Now, the water itself does not cleanse you. The blood of Christ does. But the water represents the cleansing that took place when you were converted. Baptism represents cleansing from sin. Everybody copy? Baptism also symbolizes union with Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you died and you rose again. 
Okay? Does everybody understand that? The old you died, and the new you came to life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. So baptism quite physically pictures that union. When I baptize someone, I say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism represents union with Jesus, your union with his death, your union with him in life. It also pictures the fact that just as he died but rose again, guess what? You're going to die, but you're going to rise again. Praise God. It pictures that. So it pictures purification. It pictures union with Christ. And it pictures incorporation into the body of Christ. In Acts 2.41, they were baptized and immediately added to the number of the church. When we are incorporated into Christ, think about this on a universal level, it flows down to a local level. When we are incorporated into Christ, when we are converted, we are part of the universal church, correct? All believers everywhere. It follows that when we are incorporated into Christ, we are also incorporated into his local church. And so baptism is the entry marker, is the entry right into the local church. Just as you were converted and joined the local church, God ordains that you are baptized and join Just as you were converted and joined the universal church, God ordains that you should be baptized and join the local church. Does that make sense? So it's for this reason, by the way, that baptism is tied to and is a requirement for membership. Now, who may be baptized? Believers only. This is obviously unique to Baptists. But remember, that's actually not the most important thing about Baptists. What's the defining mark of, of, of the Baptist upon the life of the church? What's, our, what's the most important thing for us, according to what I said earlier? Regenerate church membership. That's right. So thus, if baptism is the entry marker into the church, of course it should only be believers, right? Only believers are part of the church. So it's for believers only. That's unique to Baptists, obviously. Now, let me just so throw it out to you for a second. Why... Is believers' baptism important? Believers only. Why is that important? And I give you a hint. Think about, think about what baptism symbolizes, what we just covered. Think about those things. So why is, why is it important that only believers are baptized? <clears throat> so over the years... Uh, I've always, somebody said, what is baptism? I said, it's outward side and, uh, sign of an inward change. And that would only be true of? Someone that comes faith. Exactly. What's another reason why it's important that believers only are baptized? Can't have unbelievers incorporated into the body of Christ. Are unbelievers part of the body of Christ? No, they're actually not. Does that mean that unbelievers aren't welcome to be a part of our services? No. no. <laughs> Please understand the distinction. It's, it's who are members of the local church. It should only be believers. What's another reason? Why it's important that baptism be the proper subject or is a believer only? 
It symbolizes something that's not true of unbelievers. It symbolizes something that's not true of unbelievers. That's right. That's right. So my pedo-baptist brethren, whom I love and seriously disagree with, would say, hey, listen, you know, um, you, BJ, you talk all about the difference between um, what's descriptive and, and prescriptive in Scripture. What's descriptive is just what happens. And not everything that is descriptive is actually prescriptive. Prescriptive means do this. And sometimes Baptists only talk about the believers being baptized because that's what we see in the New Testament. And my pedo-baptist brethren kind of ride in on a horse and they're like, see, but that, that you're just saying you shouldn't, uh, you should, look at me, I lost my train of thought. Um, you're just saying, uh, you're just pointing out something descriptive. And you're locking in on that too thoroughly, you Baptist you. And I would just say, no, 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 no. We need, to, we need to stand more than simply upon this is what we observe in the New Testament. We need to stand upon the theological meaning of baptism. And by that we see that it's not just descriptive. It's not just that we happen to only see believers being baptized in Scripture. It's prescriptive. It's, it's what the Lord would have us to do. Okay. When should someone be baptized? Well, they should be baptized upon a valid profession of faith. And then I just want to give you a pastoral word in relation to kids. A pastoral word in relation to kids. Kids can come to faith young. Kids can come to faith as soon as they can really grasp the reality that they are a sinner in need of a Savior and entrust themselves to their Savior savingly. But let me also tell you, just pastorally, it's really hard to know if a young child has truly come to Christ. Do you know why? Several reasons. Number one, kids most of the time have a disposition to please their parents. Even if they're real stinkers, they have an overall disposition to please their parents when they're young. And so you can't tell if they really want to please the Lord or if they're just really wanting to please their parents. You can't really tell if... They're just, you know, yeah, mommy, I believe in Jesus because, you know, they they mean that genuinely, but the reality is they're just, they're here, they're part of the church, they're part of your family, they see you praying, they see you singing, they see Awana is fun and Mr. Parker throws out candy and all that good stuff. Jesus is great, right? But it may not be really in their hearts yet. You just don't know. That's number one. Number two, they don't have the freedom as young children for you to to have the opportunity to really see what's in their hearts yet. When they begin to get older and they're not under your watchful eye at all times and there's, there's some more freedom, that's when you begin to see what's really in that heart. Okay? So kids can come to Christ super young. They absolutely can. We here at Redeeming Grace choose not to, and this is not a biblical, you have to do this. This is a wisdom issue that as the elders of this local church, we've made the decision that we're just holding off on baptizing kiddos until they're at least in seventh grade. Uh, Because we just think a little bit more maturity is helpful uh, before uh, before someone takes the plunge, per se. So I always want to buttress that to say, please, please, please be clear. We're not saying your kiddo cannot be saved younger than that. We're not saying that. But we are saying, it is honestly hard to know. And I have to be honest with you, as your pastor, as a parent, you do not have the clearest vision on these things. Because you want nothing more than your kids to be in Christ. 
You want nothing more than that. And so, you're, you know, you, you, you kind of want to lock down on that yourself. And so we just think it's good to take some time. So just, that's just a pastoral note on the timing of baptism here at Redeeming Grace Church. How should somebody be baptized? Oh my goodness, I need to keep going. By immersion. Yes. Why? Because that's the New Testament pattern. Because it makes the most sense of the Greek word baptizo, which means plunge, dip, or immerse. And it makes the most sense with the theology of baptism. What does baptism symbolize? Union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is most clearly pictured by a immersion, you know? So, there you have it. Um, what, yeah, this, actually I want to pause here. This is pretty important, okay? Is baptism just a thing? No. What are some of the blessings of baptism? Well, number one, it portrays the gospel. How does it portray the gospel? Can somebody just shoot out a thought? How does it portray the gospel? How does baptism portray the gospel? Or aspects of the gospel? Andrew? Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again, in accordance with the scripture. Uh, so that's the kind of distilled version of the gospel in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, and those are all pictured in baptism, right? How else does baptism portray the gospel? You're going under the water, you're dying to your old self, you're raised to new self. Okay. Excellent. How else does baptism portray the gospel? The blood of Christ washing away your sins. And, the, and symbolically, the water doing the same. Yes. I would also say, in keeping with our understanding of the necessity and importance of regenerate church membership... Baptism is intended by God to protect regenerate church membership. It is a front door with a key that not everybody can open. In other words, if you're baptized here at Redeeming Grace, you are baptized because we as elders have carefully vetted your testimony and your understanding of the gospel and whether or not we believe you've actually come to Christ. What are we doing? Well, we're blessing you because we don't want to baptize you if we don't think you're a believer. But we're also protecting the purity of the church, she for whom Christ died. We're protecting regenerate church membership. In not, We're not going to baptize someone who we don't think is a Christian. And that's intended by God. He intends for baptism to be a protectant for the purity of the church, for it to only be regenerate church membership. And that's why he gives it to the church to be the authority in baptizing people who have come to faith so that the church, regenerate church membership, is protected. So it protects regenerate church membership. It also affirms the recipient's profession of faith. How does it affirm the recipient's profession of faith? What? They've got to give the testimony. Okay, they've got to give the testimony. Yeah, that's not a scriptural requirement. We think it's wise, and so we do that. Yes, that's true. How else does it affirm someone's faith? Yes. Yes. 
of the church is, you know, in our context, uh, through the elders' leadership, uh, vetting that situation, the church is affirming we believe to be in Christ and therefore are giving the sign. Yes. And the baptized are willingly dying to their sins and being raised to they're, they're making a, a commitment there that they're willing to do that. And it also ushers the recipient into the community of faith. That's a tremendous blessing of baptism. It ushers someone in to the community of faith. It's a very public commitment, display, sign, seal, ceremony, wherein you're saying, the baptized, the recipient is saying, I'm no longer part of the world. I'm part of you. You're my people. And we as a church are actually not passive in this. We are quite active. And we're saying, yes, you are no longer part of the world. You are part of us. And we have a responsibility to you to help you walk in wisdom and in love. And if you don't, we're going to love you enough even to carry out church discipline and to not allow you to partake of the Lord's Supper if you don't repent. Which gets us to the next ordinance, which is also a protector of regenerate church membership. It's a backdoor protector of regenerate church membership, among other things, and that's the Lord's Supper. So let's look at the Lord's Supper. Here's another quote from that same work that I was referencing. If baptism is the wedding ceremony in which a believer publicly declares his or her commitment to Christ... The Lord's Supper is similar to an anniversary celebration in which the wedding vows are renewed. In fact, some Baptist churches in earlier times, I actually know of quite a few Baptist churches now, would recite their church covenant prior to observing the Lord's Supper, verbally renewing their commitment to the Lord and to one another. I think it's actually a pretty darn good idea. Maybe not to be done every time, but I think it's a pretty darn good idea. So what does the Lord's Supper symbolize? Now, I actually preached on this just a few weeks ago, so you may remember it. So I'm going to cover this in brief. I would say there are five, at least five aspects of meaning to the Lord's Supper. One, we look back in remembrance. We look back in remembrance what Jesus has done. Two, we look ahead in anticipation towards the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is coming, of which we will partake. Three, we look within in self-examination. Paul says, examine yourselves. So not only do we look back, not only do we look forward, we look within. And how I understand this to mean is not have you had a bad week. Um, we all have bad weeks. We all sin, and sometimes we sin terribly. This is not a call to, have I had a sinless week? If, if you have, you actually just aren't very aware of yourself. You have sinned this week. Uh, okay, I hate to tell you. Um, actually, I don't hate to tell you. I, I'm happy to tell you because you, of course you've sinned. <laughs> don't, don't tell me you haven't sinned in either thought, word, or deed this week. Uh, if you don't think you have, you don't have, you don't have a robust of enough of view of sin. You really don't. You, you just think it's either just adultery, cheating on your wife, looking at porn, you know, something really, really, really bad. Um, and you don't understand that it's the 
It's the anger in your heart that rises up when somebody just kind of rubs you the wrong way. Or it's the, the covetousness that you're, you're longing to have that thing that you don't have. Or the discontentment at the situation God has you in because you don't like the situation in your life. All of that, that's all sin. You're all a bunch of dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinners. But Jesus has died for you, and that's why you come to the table to remember the fact that he has died for you. But when I say look within, what I mean is if you are continuing in unrepentant sin, if, it is, if you know you're sinning and you're unwilling to leave that sin, I would tell you, you need to not partake of the table that week, okay? Um, you need to look around at your brothers and sisters because this is a community meal. This is one of the aspects of the Lord's Supper that I think in modern-day evangelicalism with our lack of overall understanding of the church-centric focus of the Christian life, where we're totally, we totally miss the boat on this. In context, when Paul says, examine yourselves... It is not about what I just told you about, primarily. That's a secondary application. The primary application is when he says, examine yourselves, he's talking about how you're relating to everybody else in this room. This is a community meal, and so it is to be done in a way, and it is to be done by those who are loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a really, really big deal. Um, and so we are to look around um, and make sure we're relating well and lovingly and serving and blessing our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're to look outward in proclamation. So those are the five aspects of meaning. I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus means when he says, this is my body. He says, this is my body broken for you. What does that mean? Um, well, uh, the Roman Catholic view is transubstantiation, which believes and holds that the body and the, uh, or the bread and the cup become, not in form, but in essence, really and truly, they do become the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the bread and the cup that you are drinking, according to transubstantiation, is, in truth, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is not accurate, that is not true, but that is the view. The next view is Luther, uh, who said, no, 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 not that, but, but really close. Um, and so he advocated for something called consubstantiation. So what's transubstantiation? Hit me. The, the, the bread and the cup are the body and bread, are the body and blood of Jesus, right? Consubstantiation says, no, but Jesus, Jesus' body and blood are in, with, and under the elements. What does that mean? I don't even know. And I've just talked to Lutherans. I've talked to Lutherans, and I'm convinced Lutherans don't even know. Okay? I was at uh, a basic chaplain course, and there was a very committed, theologically astute Lutheran chaplain. And I was like, what do you mean? Um, and he was like, I don't have to understand it. It's a mystery. And this is what it means. And you, it's, it's, it's a mystery. What does it mean that he's in, with, and under? I don't know, but he is. And I'm like, Okay. Um, so that, I don't think that is right, um, all right? Um, so there are two widely held Protestant views 
Baptists would be included in this. One is the memorial view, uh, advocated first by Ulrich Zwingli, who was a contemporary of Luther, and he said that the the Lord's Supper is a uh, the words "This is my body." It's just, it's a signification, and this is about remembering what Jesus has done. Uh, Luther did not think that that was robust enough. He did not agree with Zwingli about that. Uh, So there's the memorial view. And then there is the spiritual presence view. This was advocated by John Calvin. And he also believed that, yes, when Jesus said, this is my body, it's a signification. Yet he wanted it a little bit stronger. Uh, He wanted a little bit stronger than Zwingli's position. And he said that Christ really is present spiritually with his people when we partake of this. He's not truly present with his people, like physically, but he is spiritually present with us in a special way. Um, and Baptists throughout court's history have held to both. Baptists throughout court's history have held, church history has held to both. And actually, depending on certain writers, it's, you know, the, the views are actually just quite close, depending on how one articulates the view, okay? So either one of those would be within the lanes of Baptist, uh, an appropriate Baptist understanding of what it means when Jesus says, this is my body. All right, who can partake? Who can partake of the Lord's Supper? Uh, Agreed upon by all Baptists is that the table is for believers only. All Baptists would say, you must be a believer in order to partake of the table. Now, past that, uh, there is disagreement, and I want to talk to you about open versus close versus closed, hey, those kids are having fun. Um, There is open versus close versus closed communion. Open communion says this, you may partake if you're a believer. So simple as that. If you're a believer, you can partake. That's open communion. Close communion says you may partake if you're a baptized believer, okay? Closed communion says you may partake if you're a baptized believer who's a member in good standing at this church, okay? Everybody get that? Open, believer, close, baptized believer, closed, baptized believer who's part of this church, okay? Now, I do want to share with you a I have a footnote. You don't have to read the footnote. I'll explain to you the footnote. There are two additional assumptions in close communion that most Baptists are making. One, when we say baptized, we mean baptized as a believer. Okay. Two, we assume, most Baptists assume, that you are a part of a local church. So there's kind of an assumed Those are assumed requirements in the close communion position by most Baptists. Is that when we say baptized, is that when when the baptized believer is said, it's assuming a Baptist understanding of baptism, because we don't think other baptism is baptism. We think you just got wet. And then two, uh, two, it's assumed that you are actually a member of a local church, because what is baptism but the entry marker into the church? So a Baptist historically would understand, if you've been baptized, you're a member of a local church, historically. Now, what do we we practice here at Redeeming Grace Church? It's a modified version of close communion. 
It's a modified version of close communion. We say, if you, ha- if you are a baptized believer, we invite you to partake. So we don't explicitly require a Baptist understanding of the table, a Baptist understanding of baptism to partake in the table. We leave that uh, to the conscience of the person partaking. And then we don't explicitly require that you be a member uh, in good standing at a church. Does that make sense? So these things take some wisdom as to how they're carried out. That's, that's where we are, at least currently. It's a modified close communion position. Uh, when should you partake of the Lord's Supper? As often as you do it, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. In other words, there's no commandment on frequency. So if you do it once per month, if you do it once per quarter, if you do it once per year, if you do it once per week, there's not a thus saith the Lord. These things are wisdom issues. Um, we at Redeeming Grace believe that it is good to do it on a weekly basis. But I don't bat an eye at my Baptist brethren who do it once a month or once a quarter. I would say if I was part of a Baptist church that only did it once a quarter, I'd just be, I feel like I, just personally, I just feel like I'd be missing it. I'd be like, come on, man. Let's have us some Lord's Supper. Um, but that's just me. Uh, and then, uh, when should you partake of the Lord's Supper? When you come together. Again, remember that this is a communal ordinance. This is not an individual ordinance. So this is something for the church gathered. This is not something, if you did this at your wedding, I'm not, I'm not dogging on you, but if you like had, uh, I, yeah, I won't, okay. Um, if you did this at your wedding, I'm not dogging at you, but I don't think that you should partake of the Lord's Supper at your wedding. It's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not the church gathering. It's you getting married. That's not, that's not the church gathered. So I actually think it's a church ordinance for the church gathered. Um, so at Redeeming Grace, if you were to ask me to marry you, I'd say, yes, I'm going to marry you. And if you'd say, BJ, would you celebrate the, have us celebrate the Lord's Supper? I'd say, no. Uh, and then you'd think, boy, he's touchy. Uh, and I'd just say, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's appropriate. Um, so uh, that's also why, for instance, we don't have you celebrate the Lord's Supper at your home group, right? So sometimes that's been asked, we do Lord's Supper as a home group? And I say, no, because uh, I think it's for the church Gathered. I think it's for the church gathered. Okay. Um, who should not partake of the Lord's Supper? Those who have been excommunicated, those who haven't been baptized, and those who are living in unrepentant sin. Those who have been excommunicated, those who have been baptized. Everybody understand what excommunicated means? Say again? Yeah. Put bluntly, kicked out of the church. So that's the process of church discipline lined out in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians 5, where if someone is in unrepentant sin, one brother or sister goes. If that's successful, good. If not, you proceed to step two, where multiple brothers and sisters approach the unrepentant brother or sister and say, hey, this this needs to change. This is sin. This is a matter of righteousness. Um, And if the brother or sister repents, good. If not, then you tell it to the church. And you tell it to the church, and then you either, depending on the situation, give it time or don't give it time, uh, and then excommunicate the brother or sister. And what you're saying in excommunication is this. You're saying, we as a church can no longer affirm your profession of faith. 
So in baptism, we are affirming your profession of faith, and we're saying we think that you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ. You will be in heaven. In the Lord's Supper, we're affirming that profession of faith. When we remove your, your um, privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper, what we are saying to you is we can no longer affirm your profession of faith, and if you continue to live how you live, we don't think you're going to be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, so we can't in good conscience allow you to partake of this event that speaks of that event. Does that make sense? So we remove the ability to partake at the table. Hence, it protects regenerate church membership and the gospel. Because nobody can just say they're a Christian and then live however they want to live and be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, can they? No, they can't. Uh, By the way, for those of you who are members, you'll know that we are actually in the third step of church discipline with one particular member of our church. there's, there's nothing I can say specific about that other than there's, there's encouraging progress. So would you continue to pray? There's encouraging progress. And at our next members meeting, I hope to be able to share more. There's encouraging progress. Um, what are some of the blessings of the Lord's Supper? I want to ask you, how does the Lord's Supper portray the gospel? How does the Lord's Supper portray the gospel? Andrew, wine is red like blood. <laughs> Pardon? Wine is red like blood. Okay. So that's that's Jesus, not unfair. Jesus' mortality and his, his death for us. Okay. Scott? Similarly, the bread is broken, just as Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay. Keep it coming. The cup's the new covenant, symbol of the new covenant. Okay. Wes? Our eating and drinking is a symbol of faith. Eating and drinking is a symbol of faith. It also portrays the community nature of the gospel. We do this together, just as we are to be walking out the Christian life together. How does it protect regenerate church membership? If baptism is like a front door protection, um, how is the Lord's Supper like back door protection to regenerate church membership? Okay. And removing, removing the privilege of the table is us saying, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. As, as far as we can see, we're not, you're not a believer. And removing, removing the table from someone is protecting regenerate church membership. And we're saying, you're no longer a member of us. I'm sorry. Now, even in that, by the way, isn't it clear in 2 Corinthians that if the unrepentant sinner eventually repents, what are you to do? Receive them back, right? But the purity of the church is very, very important to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given baptism and the Lord's Supper as protectors of the church's purity. These are not just symbols for individual Christians. They're actually given by God to protect Regenerate church membership. And how does it affirm the communal nature of the Christian life? Because we do it together. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we've run out of time. I feel like I managed myself a little bit better 
than last week. Thank you. Thank you for your participation. I hope that you're learning. Heather, you have a question? I may not be able to answer it or I may answer you afterwards. Go ahead. I think you covered it. But if we are visiting someone, we're visiting an area, and we go to a church, and we're not really sure if, I mean, they proclaim Christian in their everything, but you're not sure about their leadership and who's elders and all. Should we take communion at a church like that or not? What I would do personally, this is not thus saith the Lord, what I would do personally is if the church's doctrinal positions are orthodox, they believe and preach the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. They may be squishy on some stuff, may not be healthy on some stuff, but if they believe and preach the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, I would feel comfortable partaking as a visitor. If they do not, or if they are patently giving way on very significant things, I think I would probably refrain. But that's not thus saith the Lord. I'd leave you to your own conscience there. That's a great question. How do you handle a shut-in who wishes to partake of communion? I would bring them communion, and I'd try to bring them communion, a shut-in. Someone who is, say, uh, you know, never going to be able to come to church again because of, uh, you know, they're on bed rest and just are going to be on bed rest. Um, so I think there are exceptions right? So we would want, I think I would want to go. I would want to maybe take a couple of brothers and sisters and say, we on behalf of the church are coming to you as part of our church. And we want to, and we want to administer the elements to you. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I would do. Uh, same way, by the way, I would do if there was, say, an infirm believer. Let's say an 86-year-old woman came to faith in Jesus Christ and literally could not walk down that uh, without literally breaking her leg, okay? I think there's room for, say, a baptism by pouring in that instance, just out of love and care for her physical body. She's not able to do that. And now that's an exception, not the norm. We're out of time. I got to stop. Great questions. Come to me with them. I'll answer them for you. Uh, and come again next week. We're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? Elders and deacons. Giddy up. We'll see you then.